Hi, I'm Sue Wyatt. I'm a member of the eight o'clock congregation, but sometimes we come to five when we've had a sleep in. So we're about to read the Bible. If you'd like to get your Bible ready, it's Ecclesiastes chapter eight, and we're reading from verse three through to verse 13. So Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse two. Obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty and don't stand with those who plot evil for the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right. For there is a time and a way for everything, even when a person is in trouble. Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to present the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. I've thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. I've seen wicked people buried with honour. Yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they were committed for their crimes. This too is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. Well, hi there. My name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers of St. Matthew's. If you could have your Bibles open at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, that would be a great help to me. And as you do that, I'll lead us in an opening prayer. Heavenly Father, quieten our spirits that we might learn. Amen. I've deliberately refrained from making jokes at Donald Trump's expense since he was elected president. I didn't mind poking fun at him before then because uh, it was just so easy. And at that stage, he really was just an oversized orange cartoon. But once he got elected to the top job, I just thought it, it wasn't right to keep doing it. Boy, you'd have to admit that his recent performance as leader of the free world has been pretty underwhelming. I mean, the way he's just been so dismissive of the real threat of coronavirus, which has been costly to the American nation to the tune of 100,000 people. And then this past fortnight or so, where he could have brought the nation together as rioters and law enforcement went toe to toe right across the country, he instead threatened protesters at the White House with vicious dogs. And he did that awful staged Bible photo op in front of the burning church, it just felt like a new low. I don't know how you'd feel living in America right now. If I was a Christian minister in China, I don't think I'd have the guts to criticise the Chinese government. I don't know how you'd feel living in China right now, or North Korea, or Russia makes you very thankful to have the leaders and the rulers who we have, makes you very thankful to be living in Australia. Is there anywhere better to live in the world than Australia? 
Well, of course, the answer to that question is New Zealand. But we're pretty much the next best place to live in the world, and not just now. So we ought to thank God for our leaders as well as pray for them. But it's not like they're perfect. And it's not like they're never difficult to live under. So how do we live under rule when we live under the sun? That's the question before us today. How do we live as subjects to kings, emperors, governors, presidents, premiers and prime ministers, none of whom are perfect? We'll be thinking about that matter today. Well, we're a fair way into our series on Ecclesiastes now, which we've called Under the Sun. We've noted that theme tune where the, the teacher, this wisest and wealthiest king in all Jerusalem, says everything is meaningless. It's havel. It's transient, temporary, ungrippable, impenetrable, confusing, fleeting, a vapour, a mist, smoke where nothing appears to bring ultimate meaning to us, whether that's work, pleasure or wealth, other than relationship with God. But even relationship with God doesn't shield us from the frustrations and the confusions of this life under the sun. And we're going to see how that plays out as people who live under rule, under the imperfect rule of imperfect rulers. And so today I'd like us to look at the harsh reality of human rule, before considering a healthy response to human rule. And then we'll finish up by thinking about the heavenly review of human rule, or basically God's judgment on human rulers and why that's a key thing for us to keep in mind. But firstly then, it's the harsh reality of human rule. And that is something we get hints of throughout the book of Ecclesiastes well before we arrive at chapter 8, our passage for today. So consider these verses from earlier in the book, from chapter 3. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Or chapter 4, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Or from chapter 5, as we heard last week. If you see the poor oppressed in the district with justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. You see, those verses are describing the harsh reality of human rule. Power is on the side of the oppressors. Wickedness is located where there ought to be justice. Haven't we seen that in recent weeks? Each level of officialdom take their cut from the people all the way up to the top to the king. And I suppose uh, one of the problems with all this is that the king cannot really be questioned or opposed. Verse 4 in our passage today says the king will do whatever he pleases. His word is supreme. You can't say to him, what are you doing? There is a saying that you might have heard, the king can do no wrong. The king can do no wrong. The saying goes back to the ancient Persian empire where one of the Persian kings wanted to marry his sister. So definitely not cool, definitely not right. But he called his oldest and wisest experts, the sages in the land, and he told them to do a search of all the laws and to find him one 
that would allow him to marry his sister. Well, he called them back and asked them if they'd found a law that would allow him to do that. And they said no, at which point the king's bodyguards reached for their swords. And at which point the leaders of the sage said they'd found another law that the king might like. And so the king told the guards to wait. As the sages recounted this law, the king can do no wrong. The king can do no wrong. Well, that saved their lives. Probably didn't work out all that well for the sister, though, did it? Even when it's clearly not right, the king can do no wrong. You cannot question him. You cannot correct him. You cannot resist him. And if that sounds foreign to us, it's only because we have the extreme fortune to be living in this part of the world at this time in history. We are living in an anomaly, in an exception across the world today. And across history, most people live under rule which cannot be questioned and cannot be resisted. And I guess that wouldn't be a problem if the human ruler was kind and benevolent and always had the best interests of the people in mind. But how often does that happen, historically speaking? I mean, I really think we ought to praise God that we live in a state and in a nation where our leaders do generally have our interests in mind, even if we disagree with them. But again, that's an anomaly. That, that's an exception, historically speaking. Ecclesiastes 8 further impresses upon us that the king will most likely rule harshly. Verse 6, as the people are weighed down by misery. Or verse 9, lording it over others. You would know that in most countries today and across the world in total, the ruling elite far and away have most of the wealth. And it's most often not distributed to the people. And very often it is fleeced from the people. Further, the king will most likely rule foolishly and won't take advice. Uh, look at verse 7. Since no one knows the future, who can tell the king what's to come? Later in chapter 10, the teacher says, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, an error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions. In other words, leaders are going to do dumb things. They're going to do them all the time, and you won't be able to talk them out of it. And the king will most likely rule with wickedness as well as with folly and severity. And you get the sense of that throughout the passage. And the king will most likely be slow in bringing justice, suggests verse 11, to the point that the people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong, perhaps taking justice into their own hands or otherwise giving crime a crack because who's going to stop them? And so the king will most likely rule with severity, with folly, with wickedness and with slowness, at least as it concerns bringing justice and relief to the people. And if I'm speaking to you today, and you're in a position of power, you need to not be like this. And if I'm speaking to you today and you don't have a government and rulers over you who are like this, you need to be on your knees in gratitude to God. Because most often, there is a harsh reality to human rule. So I guess the, the question is, if human rule is generally so harsh, you might think um, the appropriate response is rebellion or armed resistance 
or fleeing such a rule, perhaps going underground. But the teacher says, no, that, that's not a healthy response to human rule. In fact, he says, quite a few things comprise a healthy response to human rule, despite its, its harsh reality. And the first is almost the kind of the meta message of the whole passage. And that is, don't be surprised by the harsh reality of human rule. By this far in the book, you'd have gathered this teacher is not an idealist. He's not concerned with how things ought to be in a perfect world. He's a realist, a pragmatist, and his concern is how things actually are at ground level and how you can make the best of that reality. So don't be surprised when human rulers are harsh and foolish and wicked and slow to bring relief. When the commander-in-chief ought to act as healer-in-chief, reconciler-in-chief, but instead carries on like inflamer-in-chief, don't be surprised by that. But the second element is as curious as it is consistent right across Scripture. Obey the king or the authorities of the land. When you hear that human rule is harsh, you think as Christians, maybe we ought to resist the king. But consistently, the scriptures tell us to obey the king, to submit to the human authorities that God has placed over us, even if they're not Christian, even if they're harsh, even if they're hostile to believers. Now, we're going to think more about this in our winter holiday hot topic series. And we'll think about how to be engaged in politics in a Christian way. And of course, we'll brush up against it again when we look at 1 Peter in term three. But obey the king is the basic clarion call. The teacher even says it twice here for two reasons. Let's look together from verse two. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. And then down in verse five, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. You see, he's saying obey the king. For it's the right thing to do before God. In other words, as a matter of principle. But obey the king because you won't come to harm. In other words, it's also a practical necessity. Both good reasons for obeying earthly authorities, even though they're far from perfect, even when you don't agree. We don't just get to obey the rules we like. We obey the king's command. Now, if that sounds like an open and shut case to you, you might be intrigued to hear that the third element of a healthy response to human rule is to raise complaints at the right time in the right way. Raise your issues wisely. You ought to obey the king, but you still might be able to challenge his decisions if you're savvy. Let's read together in verse 5. Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Isn't it so typical of the teacher to say in one breath, verse four, who can question the king? What are you doing? And then in the next say, but if you're wise, you'll, you'll know how to raise things with him. And I wonder if that's what verse three means when it says, don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence and don't stand up for a bad cause. Uh, it's as if he's saying, choose your battles wisely and choose your timing well. Don't leave early. You want to be patient. 
Ecclesiastes 10 verse 4 says, If a ruler's anger rises against you, calmness can lay great offence to rest. Perhaps you can win him over then, especially if you're the one who's calmed him down. You know, I think uh, as Australians, we have a, a poor approach to issues of all kinds, in, including political issues. We whinge and moan and criticise. We complain on Facebook and to our friends and then do not much more. It's not often we do much more than that. We prefer to sit back and criticise than to actually stand up and lead. And we would rather complain to anyone and everyone than the person with whom we have a beef. There is a right way, a right time, a proper procedure for complaining, for objecting, and even for resisting. As regards this current um, issue before us, I understand that I don't understand. But is the proper procedure looting and burning buildings and assaulting people? Definitely not. Is it peaceful protest? Well, normally you'd think so, but there's no guarantees that you still won't get hurt or that in the age of a global pandemic that you won't get infected or perhaps infect others. And I guess the question is, what steps will generate real and lasting change? And with this issue right before us, I personally be looking to our local Indigenous leaders to supply ideas. And even just a casual look at our brother Neville Naden's Facebook page, you see there's some really effective suggestions that he mentions. And friends, the wise person seeks these sorts of avenues out. And they ought to be easier in our great democracy than in the teacher's life under the rule of harsh regimes. So raise your issues wisely. There's a story in West African folklore. It's from Mali, in fact, uh, and it involves a hat salesman called Bamusa. And he's got a wonderful collection of plush red hats that he carries on his head. But when Bamusa is tired from his long day, he takes a nap under a tree, which is full of mischievous monkeys who happen to sneakily steal his whole inventory of hats while he sleeps. And then they climb out of his reach. And upon waking up, Bamusa realises what the monkeys have done. They've stolen his hat. Uh, and he gestures wildly at the monkeys. And they mimic him by gesturing wildly in return. And he screams angrily at the monkeys, who respond by imitating his angry screams. And Bamusa is at a loss. And finally, defeated, he throws his own hat to the ground in frustration. At which point all the monkeys in the tree do the exact same thing. All the hats are on the ground, but Musa collects them and everything works out well for him. Do you know that's the origin of the phrase, monkey see, monkey do. But when faced with harsh human rule, the teacher has another suggestion and instead suggests monkey see, monkey don't. That is, when you're faced with wicked and harsh rule, the answer is not for people to mimic that wickedness and that severity. You'll see there in verse 8 that wickedness ensnares those who practice it. If a king is wicked, he won't be able to escape his own wickedness. But you'll see further down in verse 12 a stronger injunction to avoid monkey see, monkey do. 
Let's read together verse 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know it'll go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go with them, go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. I suspect the wicked person there is referring to a wicked ruler. But the teacher says it goes better for those who fear God than those who don't fear God, who will not see long or perhaps lasting life. It is possible for a populace to rise up, not against their ruler, but in contrast to their rulers, exercising care and integrity and justice and bringing relief and deliverance. And if you think about that, isn't that what most of our charities do? They, they bridge the gap between what people need and what governments might supply. Do you not think that is a better way to respond to harsh rulers than to mirror their harshness in our own personal interactions? I guess I'm saying we ought to be good neighbours and perhaps we need to devote ourselves to right causes. Monkey see, monkey don't. Well, I, I suspect you'll like the fifth and last element, which is don't forget to enjoy the simple things in life that are at your fingertips. You know, in most countries and in most ages, there's an awful lot to be concerned about. And the weight of it, it's almost crushing. And so the teacher reminds us that because of all that, a healthy response includes enjoyment of the simple pleasures of life. Let's read verse 15 together. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. And then joy will accompany them in their toil. Truth is, sometimes when you cannot fix all the problems in the world or even the problems in your own life, despite your sincere efforts and your kind heart, the answer is to pause, breathe, and go for pizza with your friends. Now, I'm not saying that's the complete answer. I'm not saying uh, don't worry about world issues, just enjoy yourself. But it is part of a healthy response to the world as we experience it. So enjoy the game. Watch the film. Laugh loudly. Burp at the dinner table. Buy the good quality ice cream. And uh, get yourself a sec second scoop. Ride a bike. I mean, you might need to if you've had that second scoop. Or go for a drive or go for a surf, or take a holiday, or make a campfire, sing, laugh some more, tell someone you love them, especially if you do love them. It's part of a healthy response to harsh human rule. But I think the last place we need to get to today is to think about the heavenly review of human rule. In other words, God will judge human rulers. And you and I may not be able to resist or question a king, but there are two things that they cannot resist either, their own death and then the judgment of God. And I think that's a help to any Christian who lives under harsh human rule. However wicked their king is, he will not live forever. And then he'll face God in judgment. I mean, just string together some of the verses in chapter 8. 
as no one has power over the wind to contain it. No one has power over the time of the death. Then I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to go from the holy place and receive praise in the city. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time because they do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. In essence, the teacher is saying that even though us mere subjects of the king or the rulers of the land cannot question or resist him, he will die and he will answer to God. And the way the king ruled will be weighed by God and his wickedness will count against him. He might have got away with murder, might have got away with a hundred crimes and even received praise while doing it, but he will not receive lasting life. His days will not lengthen. His lack of reverence for God and God's ways will be punished. Now, as we finish, isn't it true, however, that whatever applies to the king in his kingdom also applies to each of us in our little lives. You have a look at the last verse of chapter 7. It's on the same page. The teacher says, This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they've gone in search of many schemes. It turns out that it's not only kings who can be wicked. We have all gone in search of many schemes. Which is why it's so extraordinary that the Lord Jesus, who was also known as the Prince of Peace and who ushered in the kingdom of God, might establish peace and justice, not by eliminating our evil and thereby eliminating us, but by absorbing our evil, covering it over, paying its price and then getting to work in our hearts, first turning us back to God, then shaping us into his own likeness slowly in the power of the Holy Spirit and urging us to pursue peace and justice in our own lives and in our own world. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will bring salvation to those who wait for him. Friends, the heavenly review of human rule doesn't just mean that kings, dictators, governors, presidents and premiers will die and then face judgment. It also means that the one and only king died and faced our judgment for us, taking away our sins and bringing salvation to us. So it is no foolish thing to subject yourself to that kind of king. And it's the wisest of things to look forward eagerly to the coming of that kind of kingdom. Amen and amen.